0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Shai Held, co founder, dean, and chair in Jewish thought at Mechon Hadar. Here to talk about his new book, Abraham Joshua Heschel, The Call of Transcendence, published in 2013 by Indiana
1: University Press.
0: Shai, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Shai, tell us very briefly what is Mechon Hadar?
1: Mechon Hadar is a center for advanced Jewish learning based in New York that really aims to serve the Jewish people in North America and around the world. We run everything from full-time yeshiva programs to evening programs, conferences on major ideas in Jewish life and thought, um, and a really stellar website, which I invite people to check out, mechonhadar.org. Great. Uh, You've written a study of Abraham Joshua
0: Heschel, uh, a theologian, scholar, activist. How would you describe him? And is Heschel as well or properly known as he should be?
1: Well, I think that your, your adverb properly is extremely interesting. Is Heschel as properly known as he should be? So let me start with Heschel the thinker. Um, one of the things that's most interesting, I think, is that Heschel has been, I would say, the victim of his own eloquence. And what I mean by that is that Heschel wrote so beautifully that people often treat him as a kind of Jewish Bartlett's book of quotations, and one of the things, and in fact, Heschel wrote in a way that repays that approach. And yet, one of the consequences of that is that it's extremely rare that people actually do the work of identifying and grappling with the deep structure of his thought. Because underneath all of the incredi- all of the incredibly powerful pithy aphorisms, is actually an interpretation of the Jewish tradition as a whole, a critique of modernity, and a really deep Sense of why those two things are related to each other, of how Judaism might be an antidote to the ills of modernity as Heschel understands them. Um, Heschel has become a kind of hero to a lot of social justice activists, understandably so given his involvement in the civil rights movement. And yet again, I think in certain ways he's become, for many people, more of an icon than a thinker to be wrestled with. And one of the things I said about doing in my book was to really, really do two things. One was to first uncover what is Heschel really arguing? And second, to engage in a critical but sympathetic reading. In an interesting way, um, readings of Heschel have often been split between those who are so sympathetic that they're basically adoring and uncritical, and those who are so critical that they're basically dismissive. And I, I actually felt that I wanted to try to do something that, in a funny way, was more respectful of Heschel than either his worshippers or his detractors um, have usually mustard, which is a really serious reading of his work.
0: Mm -hmm. And one of your main arguments is that there's one thread that connects almost everything that Heschel wrote. Tell us about that.
1: I argue that one of the great kind of the red thread that runs through Heschel's writing is the notion of self-transcendence, which for Heschel essentially means the realization that my ego is not the center of the world. It's a move from self-centeredness to other-centeredness, or as Heschel might have preferred, a move from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. And what I try to suggest is that in almost every major theme Heschel takes up, that notion of self-transcendence is hovering right under the surface, the notion of overcoming the ego. And in an interesting way, he he, he makes an argument that I think is very unexpected, which is that God is the paradigm of self-transcendence. He argues that if you read the Bible, you discover there a God who has almost no concern for God's self and is instead focused entirely on others. Now, that is a controversial reading of the Bible. I think you could read the book of Exodus, the book of Ezekiel, and other texts and think that God is actually quite invested in God's own ego and reputation. But for Heschel, at any rate, the God of Israel is utterly self-transcendent, egoless, not thinking about himself, and the God who is self-transcendent summons Israel and humanity to lives of self-transcendence. God summons us to be on some level like God is, um, centering other people rather than our own ego.
0: Right. So let's step back a little. How would you place Heschel? Is there such a thing as sort of modern Jewish thought? And where would you place Heschel in it?
1: Is there such a thing as modern Jewish thought? I think there certainly is. You know, the more controversial questions are using terms like modern Jewish philosophy. Um, when you use a term like modern Jewish thought, I think Heschel is very much, um, if one wants to approach this as an intellectual historian, Heschel very much fits in mid-20th century Jewish thought in a whole variety of ways. One of the most interesting ways, I think, and I try to emphasize this, I think it's in the fourth chapter of my book, is in this approach that resisted what people thought of as the Hellenization of Jewish philosophy. The notion that what Judaism taught could ultimately be fully synthesized with what Greek philosophy Heschel, like a variety of other people in that period, all in different registers, but Heschel, like them, insisted that, in fact, Greek thought and biblical thought could not, in fact, be fully synthesized, that there was a gap between them. And for Heschel, really the most important gap between them is about Judaism's conception of God. At the end of the day, Heschel thinks the God of the Bible is on some level the antithesis, of the Greek unmoved mover. The God of the Bible loves widows and orphans, collects the tears of the downtrodden, cares deeply every time there's an injustice in the world, and at the end of the day, that can't be reconciled with the God of Aristotle. And so Heschel found himself very much insisting that the Hellenization of Jewish philosophy was a kind of abdication of what was most distinctive and powerful about the Bible's message to the world. Right. Your
0: book's not really a straight biography, but can you tell us a little bit about um, how his European background was important? Um, And I've always wondered what language did Heschel, you know, sort of think in?
1: Well, it's interesting. I would say my book is not a biography at all. Um, It really is an attempt to write a kind of philosophical and theological study of his work. I felt that Edward Kaplan's biography had sort of covered a lot of the ground that I would have covered in a biography, and I wanted to do something else. You know, the question of Heschel's European background, you know, you can can see this in in different ways. First, of course, there's the East European background, Heschel's Hasidic, Hasidic background. I think one of the things that Heschel inherited from his Hasidic childhood and that kind of was by his side his whole life was a really deep sense that God was manifestly real in every way. I think one of the gaps, actually, that Heschel... Um, one of the gaps of Heschel and many of his readers, I would say, is that at the end of the day, I don't think Heschel doubted the metaphysical reality of God at all. Um, he, I, I argue in the book, and this is a kind of revisionist reading, but I argue in the book that Heschel was much more perplexed theologically by the Shoah than some of his other interpreters have suggested. But that was really a question of why God was silent and why God didn't do anything, but not in light of this, you know, is it still plausible to believe in God at all? Heschel very much is an East European in that way, um, a a Hasid, And yet, although this is not what I wrote about in the book, I would say that when people talk about Heschel as merely translating Hasidut into English and and similar claims like that, that is too simple because one of the central ideas, certainly in the circle of the Magid of Mezrich in the early generations of Hasidut. This notion that the boundaries between God and humanity could be collapsed, notions of mystical union. Heschel really rejects those outright. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is Heschel's understanding of Hasidut, I think, is always filtered by his primary commitment, which is the biblical theology. And biblical theology is covenantal. It is always about God and us. It is about two. There is a two-ness, a duality, all the way down in biblical thinking. And any Hasidic notion that humans and God, that the boundaries between them could collapse, I think that's more or less totally absent in Heschel. So he is very much a product of his Hasidic background, and yet in an interesting way, he differs from it. Um, the West European background, I think, is 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 more complex. I mean, I think Heschel did feel deep influence um from Martin Buber. I suspect there was a fair amount of anxiety of influence there. Um but yeah, well, why don't I stop there?
0: Okay. Uh, and in terms of language, what languages did he speak,
1: write, think in? Well, this is, I think, one of the most remarkable things about Heschel. I, 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 this, I confess, from beginning to end, I remained in complete awe of. You know, we have letters that Heschel wrote in English in his 20s, and it's clear he can barely put together a sentence in English. And then a few years later, he's writing kind of startlingly moving English prose. He writes very beautifully in Hebrew, English, Yiddish, and German. I guess that he thought in Yiddish, although I don't know the answer to that. And he was, he had such a remarkable facility for language that I, you know, he may have been someone who was able to think in multiple languages. I mean, if you think about graduate students who try to learn languages in their 20s and their 30s and how they never get to the point of being able to order a beer, the notion of, (laughs) the notion of really, you know, writing both poetic and philosophical prose in a language you learned in your late 20s is really quite astounding.
0: Right, and he was incredibly prolific. Uh, did you, do you think that he was consistent over the years?
1: Well, one of the things that I argue, and I think there are some caveats to this, because I don't think that you can say what I'm about to say without caveats about anyone, but nevertheless, I think that on most of the big philosophical and theological issues that preoccupied him, Heschel was really consistent over the course of his life. You can't talk about an early and late Heschel in the same way that you can talk, say, about an early and late Soloveitchik or an early and late Buber. You know, in, in, in the case of Martin Buber, the transformation from a focus on mysticism to a focus on dialogue. In the case of Soloveitchik, the later focus on surrender and, and, and a kind of um, preoccupation with the Akedah, with the binding of Isaac. There you have really a transition to the later phase. Of a thinker's life. In Hatchell's case, there are a few instances where I think he evolves, but on his core commitments, I think he's remarkably consistent from beginning to end. So much so that, in fact, I argue you know, briefly in the book that even that many of the important themes in his writings are already adumbrated in his early poems when he's really a kid. So, yeah, there is remarkable consistency there. In a way that I, you know, just speaking as a, as a, as a you know, student of philosophy myself, I find it hard to relate to that. Because I think, you know, for for many of us, certainly for me, you know, I I revisit the same questions over and over again and sometimes marvel at what I was able to believe 10 years earlier. Yet Heschel really has a worldview that hangs together and remains in place over, you know, a substantial career as a writer, thinker and teacher.
0: Right. And it seemed like Heschel was really not one for compartmentalizing. So, you know, you say the poetry, the piety and the theology are all inextricably intertwined. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, let me say a couple things about that. The the first is that people often disparage Heschel by saying he was just a poet. And I think I mentioned this in the book, but, you know, I think Heschel would have marveled at the use of the term just to describe poetry, since after all, poetry gets at and evokes some of which matters most and some of what language, you know, can only stammer towards. But more fundamentally, I I suspect that one of the reasons Heschel saw the need to continue writing in that poetic mode was that he felt that there were fundamental experiences that had been lost to modern people. Most basically, the sense of wonder and appreciation for the gift of life, the sense that the world didn't have to be, my life didn't have to be, and wonder, which is really in many ways the animating category of Heschel spirituality, wonder is this constant awareness of how much I've been given and that I I didn't make it. The problem is you can't really argue someone into wonder. Or I think Heschel thought you can't argue someone into wonder. What you can do, and what he sets out to do, is to evoke it. So if you read, for example, the first part of God in Search of Man, which is you know one of the most remarkable sections of writing that Heschel ever produced, what he's doing there is arguing something, but more basically what he's trying to do is elicit something from his readers that he thinks for various reasons modernity has crowded out occluded, and he thinks that poetry has a much better chance of doing that than dry prose. Another way of saying that at the risk of offending analytic philosophers is that it's very rare that you get to step 39C of an analytic philosophical argument and feel your heart set aflame. But poetry has the potential to do that. You know, think about reading Rilke versus reading an analytic philosopher, and in a certain way you can understand why Heschel wants to sound more like Rilke, even though he has things to say that are very much philosophical. There's another aspect of non continentalization that I want to talk about very briefly, which is that Heschel, Heschel wrote scholarship on biblical theology, on rabbinic theology, on medieval philosophy, on the Hasidic masters. But in many ways, I think it's fair to say that much, most of his scholarship is really in the service of his theology. At the end of the day, Heschel really wanted to argue that modernity, you need to recover the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. We can talk about why that is. And it was important to him to show that his interpretation of who that God is was not unique or idiosyncratic to him. and was not unique or idiosyncratic to the Kabbalah, but was in fact deeply rooted in the classical sources, deeply rooted in the prophets, deeply rooted in, in the rabbinic tradition. And so in many ways, his scholarship serves that larger project of bringing God back to the world, which is in many ways, I think, what Heschel thought he was ultimately up to as a thinker and teacher.
0: And do we know sort of who he was writing against, uh, you know, people who he thought hadn't brought God into it?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question, because one of the most, I think, fascinating aspects of Heschel's corpus is that he never tells you who he's arguing against. He'll criticize people, occasionally take shots at people, and never mention them by name. You know, in one of the inter- in one of his interviews, for example, he totally dismisses the notion that anyone could think of God as the ground of being, and he says, yes, the ground of being, you know, is wonderful to believe in, never asks me for anything. Now, the ground of being, for any philosophical reader, refers to Paul Tillich's God, but Paul Tillich's name never is never mentioned. So I would say... So, so in other words, you're always doing some degree of speculation when you're answering that question. But I think there are a couple of things here. First of all, Heschel wanted to argue against a kind of reductive naturalism. And it's interesting to think about him writing in the 1950s. One can only wonder what he would make of contemporary philosophers like Daniel Dennett and people like that, who are really such kind of stubborn reductionists about human nature. Um, So Heschel, first of all, wants to argue against that. He wants to argue for the possibility of transcendence. And for the notion that human beings are more than merely biological creatures. But in terms of religious debates, I think Heschel had tremendous difficulty with what he saw as what we might call in shorthand kind of liberal Protestant gods. Ways of talking about God that compromised on the transcendence and the greatness of God. Ways of talking about God whereby God has less consciousness than I do. I think Heschel felt that a lot of what passed for liberal theology worshipped a God who was not worth worshipping. You know, for example, I think that although Heschel liked Kaplan personally, he felt that Mordecai Kaplan's theology, ultimately, you don't worship a process. You worship a God who has a will and who's capable of love and, and relationship. And then, of course, in the background, Heschel is, and perhaps this is his great ongoing debate arguing against Maimonides' attempt to fully integrate or synthesize Greek philosophy and and the Bible. At the end of the day, Heschel thinks that Maimonides surrendered the God of the Bible and ended up with an unmoved mover. Now, in good traditional, in, in a way, in a kind of bow to tradition, Heschel very rarely takes on Maimonides directly. In the prophets, for example, he attacks Philo because... Let's be honest, no one cares about Philo except for academics who work on Philo studies. Right? Philo is not a canonical figure in the same way. But I think Maimonides is a kind of philosophical bogeyman. Um, Michael Marmer from Hebrew Union College has actually shown, I think, quite beautifully that Maimonides plays this very interesting role for Heschel. He's philosophically an anti-hero because he loses, in Heschel's estimation, the god of the Bible. And yet he's humanly, in his life story, a hero. Because at least on Heschel's account, as Maimonides got older, he began to spend less time as a philosopher and more time as a doctor. And there was kind of, for Heschel, no greater understanding of Judaism than playing that out, right? Becoming more involved in serving, in caring, in taking care, and less in the abstraction of ideas. And in many ways, you could say that Heschel's understanding of the Rambam's life, of Maimonides' life, anticipate his understanding of his own life because Heschel, too, as he got older, became more and more focused on the struggles that he thought were central to his time. Right? He spends the 60s, you know, the, the great philosophical works are from the 1950s and in the 60s. Um, he's involved in what he thinks of as the main social justice causes of his time, the civil rights movement, the struggle for Soviet Jewry, the struggle against the war in Vietnam, etc. Right.
0: And are those acts that that activism is that? A manifestation of transcendence, self-transcendence
1: Yes, I think Heschel very much would have thought um, that those actions were. We could start with this: for Heschel, the God of the Bible is the God who loves widows and orphans, who regards the unregarded, and who summons people to care about people others forget about and devalue. and I, I think for Heschel, the civil rights movement was fundamentally about that. If you're going to claim to serve the God Heschel claimed to be serving, you have to side with the oppressed and the downtrodden. And the, the, the summons to transcend my ego and truly care about others led him, he felt, ineluctably in that direction.
0: I want to talk about prayer because it takes up two chapters and it's sort of central. But before we do, I want to ask a couple of quick questions. Um, so the first one is, where should a newbie start if they want to read Heschel?
1: I think it depends if they want to be inspired or if they want to be philosophically engaged. So I think for the reader who just wants to get a taste of what reading Heschel can do, I guess I would recommend reading The Sabbath, which I don't think is philosophically anywhere near his most important book. But I continue to be amazed when I travel around the country how many people, Jewish and Christian, tell me that that book began their spiritual journey. It's really quite remarkable in that way. If someone is interested in philosophy, I think I would recommend either starting with the first section of God in search of man or with an anthology edited by Heschel's student Fritz Rothschild called between God and man. Um, I think they're both actually important, you know, important and, and, and valuable starting points.
0: Right. Uh, and if self-transcendence is about realizing that the other's needs should come before my own ego, um, what do you think Heschel would have thought about sort of today's milieu of social media and self-assertion, that sort of thing?
1: Well, you know, one of the things that Heschel got from Martin Heidegger was a preoccupation with the ways the culture of technology could fundamentally distort the way we carry ourselves in the world. The way the culture of technology can make me ask over and over again, how can I use this as opposed to how can I serve for Heschel? I I think Heschel would have wanted us to emphasize that in contrast to Heidegger, Heschel's concern there was ethical and theological in a world in which my fundamental question is, how can I use this? Everything becomes an object and a tool, even other people. Right. I lose their reality and their independent dignity for Heidegger. It was some weird notion of a mystical connection to being. Um, But nevertheless, the notion that technological culture could have really deleterious spiritual consequences was really important to Heschel. And it's, it's striking to read, actually, you know, chapters and paragraphs from the 1950s about how anxiety inducing technological culture is to him. And then to wonder 60 years later, 70 years later. What he would have made of our technological culture. You know, I, I I just give you an interesting example. I mean, Heschel talks about how even religion in a technological culture can be used or is reduced to a means to serving my own ends. You know, I adopt a spiritual practice because it makes me feel good, or because any one of a thousand other reasons we might have. And you think about some of the ways that spirituality is sold in America. The notion that Judaism is a technology, the notion that Jews hire Judaism to do things for them. These are kind of ideas that are out there in the Jewish public square. I think they would have made Heschel recoil really deeply. At the end of the day, I think he would say when when rabbis, when some rabbis sometimes ask American Jews to ask how Judaism can serve them, I think we'd be much better off asking whether Judaism can teach people that not everything is about what can serve you. Um, So I, I think, you know, in many ways, I think his ideas would have been especially important it, or he would have felt especially pertinent now. And then, of course, you know, the struggle for the dignity of the forgotten and the downtrodden, I think um, he would have felt very much that that struggle continues in countless ways in our society. I, I, you know, without getting derailed by this now, I've thought a lot about, you know, Heschel in the 1960s in the civil rights movement and Heschel in the Black Lives Matter movement now. And I suspect he would argue that the struggle for civil rights has a long, long road ahead of it.
0: Right. I want to talk now about chapters six and seven um, about prayer. What what role does prayer play in the sort of schema that you've uh, understood um, Heschel as 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 constructing?
1: Well, I think for Heschel that prayer is the very paradigm of a spiritual act, or in more Jewish language, it is the paradigmatic mitzvah, and so much so that he actually argues that a mitzvah is a prayer in the form of a deed. That all All Jewish observances are ideally kind of acts of prayer. And I I think what that means, or at least central to what that means, is Heschel's notion that one of the core things we do when we pray is invite God back into the world. God has been, in Heschel's mind, driven out of the world by our callousness, by our selfishness, by the preoccupation with self-assertion. And what prayer does is attempt to create an opening in the self and thereby an opening in the world whereby God can can be brought back in. So a world in which God is exiled needs windows. This is a, a, a famous quote from the Kutzke Rebbe, right? Where does God dwell? God dwells wherever we let God in. So Heschel really felt one of his jobs as a teacher and as a spiritual writer was to help people create spaces in the world where God could return to the world. One of the ways to do that is by overcoming the ego, because it is, in fact, again, as I said, it is a kind of relentless self-assertion that helps draw God out of the world. And so overcoming the ego makes space, makes space for others and makes space for God to return to the world.
0: And and, um, you write um, that Heschel, one of Heschel's most poignant formulations about what prayer can do is, he says, in order to be human, one must be more than human. Um, I want to get your thoughts. I'd love to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I think what he's trying to say is that, you know, here, this is, this is Hel talking, not Heschel, but I think it might be helpful for a minute. If you think about the ways we use the word human, we sometimes use the word human to suggest the limits of what we're capable of. He's only human and we sometimes use it in the very opposite way what a startling act of humanity that was and i think heschel is worried that people will settle for a vision of the human that is at the end of the day not deeply aspirational doesn't overcome the ego just kind of goes along and lives in this kind of self-assert assertion driven kind of way and um so the notion that we can be more than human is a way of saying that we're capable of that. Human beings are capable of self-transcendence. The tragedy, I think, of human life from Heschel's perspective is not that we're not capable of self-transcendence, but that we are capable and yet we so frequently fail to do it. Um, And so the test of humanity from his perspective is can we be more than that? Can we actually be the kind of human being who truly self-transcends? as opposed to the kind of human being who just goes about the usual way of living, which is saying I, I, I all the time.
0: Right. Well, Shai, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share? And uh, what are you working on next?
1: What I'm working on next, I, I, um, my, the, the, my, my next book that is in process is called The Heart of Torah. It's a two-volume collection of essays um, on the weekly Torah portion that attempts to integrate traditional Jewish interpretation and modern academic biblical scholarship. That's going to be out next year from JPS. And the next project after that that I say with some tentativeness is I'd like to try and write a popular book. And by popular, I mean genre as opposed to a prediction of sales, um, a, a popular book about what it means to be religious in the modern world, a vision of what it means to be a religious person, what kind of person a religious person becomes, and then also what it means to be religious in the age of the new atheism on the one hand and of ISIS and Al-Qaeda on the other.
0: those sound like great projects. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Abraham Joshua Heschel, The Call of Transcendence, published in 2013 by Indiana University Press. The author is Shai Held. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.